All right, good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. Welcome as well to those joining us online and down in our Fellowship 3 service. Uh, everybody awake? Do we enjoy uh, the extra hour? You know, there are, there are only so many hours in a day, uh, so it is true, so many minutes in a sermon. And over the last year and a half, we here at Fellowship have realized uh, through expositional teaching of the Word of God, which is the way we think we ought to be doing this kind of thing, that man, there are, there are always some, some passages or some topics that we feel like we could spend weeks on. Books of the Bible do a good job affirming each other, informing one another, and you see such incredible ties between things that, that really do help with, with our view of God. So with that in mind, I know we gained an hour last night. I wish I, I, wish I could steal it from you now. Uh, I'd like to discuss, as efficiently as possible, the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God and 30 minutes. Uh, I don't know if you remember the first time somebody explained to you daylight savings, but you remember how even they didn't quite understand it fully, and once they were done sharing it with you, you still had questions. This might feel a, a little bit like that. God's sovereignty is confusing, and actually, I, I think it... I think it should be. If we fully understood a king's sovereignty, I'd feel bad for that king. But there can be a, a tremendous peace, and I know this might feel like kind of a, a cop-out here, but there's a tremendous peace in realizing we can't grasp all of this God in this time. But we're going to do our due diligence. God's word gives us everything we need for trusting in a sovereign Lord. So with that in mind, take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 4. As you're turning there, before we go into Acts 4 uh, for a second so you can see where we're actually getting this stuff, I want to raise the value a bit further of, of why this topic is important beyond the fact that it's, that it's daunting to discuss. Turns out theologians really, really wrestle with this kind of thing and, and they do a good job demonstrating why it's going to be crucial to understand God's sovereignty biblically. So if you were to do research on this topic of sovereignty, you'll see stuff like this. Uh, people do a good job claiming God's sovereignty. Then they live like man is sovereign. People treat God's sovereignty as a matter of controversy. But in scripture, it's a matter of worship. We must have God tell us what it means for him to be sovereign. Otherwise, we infuse limitations or possibilities into God that he doesn't find in himself. Now, we're not going to hardly spend any time on, on that. These are quotes from men, not the word of God. That slide is in an effort to inform the need, not offer a solution. The solution is going to come from what God has said, not from what any of his people think. But these men noticed in the lives of their churches why sovereignty remains such a, a touchy subject. They point out some issues. Sproul acknowledges that often, for us, the, the only palatable, practical sovereignty we choose to lean on is our own. That's an issue. Packer realized that God's sovereignty does not exist so that you and I can argue free will, but that it exists for worship, and we've lost sight of that fact. That's an issue. Piper concludes, if we're going to learn about God's sovereignty, 
We shouldn't just make it a roundtable share time where we each share what we think God's sovereignty means and looks like. I think that'd become an issue. What does the text say? So I share those quotes with you with hesitation, honestly, because it's not the Bible. It's certainly not an endorsement of anybody's theology. But man, the need is there for actual, worshipful, biblical sovereignty in our lives. So let's head to Scripture. Uh, Everybody in Acts 4, we're going to look at verse 23, okay? So here we go, hands and feet inside the vehicle at all times, please. Starting in verse 23 says this. Peter and John were just arrested prior to. It says, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal. And signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, they placed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. We'll stop there. Digging deeper into the book of Acts. One of the first questions is, What have we covered here at Fellowship over the last 18 months in regards to God's sovereignty that will be good to revisit? Turns out, uh, almost a year ago today, Mark preached on this passage. Uh, We covered the entire chapter of Acts 4, and there was this emphasis on their prayer. What does effective prayer look like? Powerful stuff. Mark touched on something, and today we're going to grab onto it with everything we got. Look at verse 24. After they're delivered from this arrest and this chaos, the faithfulness of God is shown. It says, when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Turns out you do some digging. Their response, their prayer here, uses a unique word for Lord. It's the Greek word despotos. And it doesn't just mean Lord actually more literally means master or one with total authority. In fact, if you're reading from an ESV or an English Standard Version, it does the word justice. It'll say, O sovereign Lord. Now that word is only used a handful of times in the whole Bible, let alone only once in the book of Acts. Okay? I want to share with you two examples of its appearance elsewhere in Scripture. This is going to be awesome. Here, I want to give you a story uh, from Luke's first book, uh, the Gospel account. This is Luke 2, starting in verse 25. This is early in the life of Jesus here on earth. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. How righteous and devout was he? Well, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death 
before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents, whom we know to be Joseph and Mary, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And verse 30 says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Luke 2.29 uses the word despotos. So he responds, sovereign Lord, you absolute ruler, you, you're at it again. That's what Simeon said. He grabbed a hold of Jesus and said, God is sovereign. This is an example, one of a billion of God's past sovereignty. Here's another example. This gets me going. Here's Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. This time, way different, last book of the Bible. Totally different tone, completely different author, entirely different purpose. Well into John's vision about what's to come, there's a verse in there that says this, Revelation 6.10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Again, despotos. This example, this time, refers to God's future sovereignty, specifically over people that have been persecuted for their faith. That's the context of Revelation 6. What a great verse to to identify with, by the way, on, on, say, an international day of prayer. This is a verse that is basically demonstrating God's people are saying, Lord, you are good, but good grief. There's a lot happening around here. There's merit to remembering that. Notice in that verse, they, they do not know what God is up to or when, but what do they do know? That he is sovereign, holy, and true. There is value in acknowledging. Sometimes, <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but I know who's on the throne. The word study is, is fascinating. So is the rest of that verse in Acts 4.24. So let's read it again because it's going to send us somewhere else in Scripture to a landing spot where we can truly wrestle with the sovereignty of God. Their response in the situation, when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and unity, said, O Lord, it's you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Turns out that exact phrase has been said before. I'm going to take you with me this time. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 146. Psalm 146, towards the end of the book, middle of your Bible there. Listen, the Psalms uh, come up in abundance all over Scripture, but definitely in Acts, even in Acts chapter 4. A year ago, Mark uh, discussed, there's an explicit reference to Psalm chapter 2 later in that Acts passage. But here, There's a beautiful parallel to Psalm 146 because the question is, what evidence do we have that God is sovereign? So far this morning, you want to know what you've learned? Neat. There's a word for sovereign Lord. Why should you care about that? Why why read that or or use that in our life? Look at verse 5, Psalm 146. We're going to start there. Let's see if we catch the tie-in here. It says, how blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
And the psalmist adds, who keeps faith forever. Okay? Now, Psalm 146 is a, is a classic psalm, by the way. Okay? You, got your, you got your repeated phrases. You have, you have an overwhelming tone of, of blessing. You have semicolons. It's a great psalm. But what's happening here is word for word a reminder of sovereign God as creator. Because what would compel the people in Acts to respond in this exact way? God delivered them. They were encouraged. So they acknowledged he isn't just sovereign now. He's been sovereign. He made it all. So we see biblical grounds for, and this is where your notes kick in. I know some of you are ballpoints at the ready here. God as maker. God as maker. Keep a finger in the Psalms, but do me a favor. Flip to Genesis chapter 1 for a second. Genesis chapter 1. Now I know what you're thinking. The passage used often to learn about how things started for us down here. Uh, Learn about what God did. Learn about the order in which he did it. There's so many reasons this creation order benefits. But another thing it does for us is it demonstrates the heart of our sovereign God. What did he do with his sovereignty? What, what came from him? Let's look at verse 26, Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the livestock and all the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them, said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then he said, behold, verse 29, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every animal of the earth, to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And we'll stop there. One of the first things God did with his sovereignty was make people in his image, and then he let them rule. He let them rule, and behold, it was very good. So why go to creation order? We're flipping all over the book today. Why read this? Mainly because the reality of God as creator and maker meant a lot to his worshipers, the prayerful people in time of need. Psalm 146, Acts 4. If you add to that, the misunderstanding of our day, that God created evil, that, that, that our sovereign God is some bully on the throne, teasing us, he, he's testing us. Yeah, we need to be clear on what he did with his rule and what we chose to do with ours. Because now we're, now we're getting somewhere. We have to understand the kind of God we have in charge if we're going to wrestle with his, his sovereignty, his control. So if you want to know what the Lord's vision and hope was for this earth, if you want to know the way he set things up, if you want to know his design for us, his hope for us, study creation before the fall. 
You want to know what that means for us? If God did all that and in his eyes it was very good, by our standards it would have been perfect if we could see that. It isn't until Genesis 2.18 that God reveals to us there was something that wasn't good, and that's that Adam was alone in it. So he made woman. A woman who in conjunction with the man would choose to sin and usher into this creation order disorder. Disorder that continues to wreak havoc to this day. The devil doesn't know new tricks. He's just been given new tools. They ate the fruit of the forbidden tree by deceptive choice. So we had the sovereignty of God, which was designed to be a matter of worship until mankind now made it a disorienting debate. We bit off more than we could chew. Even the the logo on the back of your phone can be a reminder of that. Sin entered the world. It did not start it. So if we're going to wrestle with God's sovereignty, and we shall, let's be clear. If we think God on the throne is the, the source and reason we are experiencing grief in the world as it is today, that God is the one doing these things to us, we've departed from Scripture. We have every right to look at the world and ask, what happened? It's a beautiful, healthy, important question to ask. But you and I have been given clear indication, proven not just by Adam and Eve, but by everybody else since. You want to know what happened? We happened. Here's Romans 3.23. In the middle of this magnificent letter to Rome, Paul reminds all of them, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So could that get any clearer? Let's not confuse what God made with what we made given the choice. God made perfection, we chose against it. We'll see soon that God also made a path of restoration and in that we all face another choice. But this this brief review of creation order and the heart behind God's actions is key. How often is the argument fueled, I don't believe in God because there's so much suffering. People conclude God must not exist because evil does, yet evil and sin is the exact same thing he came down here for. It's the stuff he died for. Evil proves his existence. The reality of good and evil is a pro-God argument. The question is, do we know how it all works? Do we know how it all ties together? Because I tell you what, looking at this world sometimes, I don't know what's going on but I know who's on the throne. Head back to Psalm 146 because God as maker is clear and important to remember. We get a little bit of his character and his tender heart for us and his creation in that Genesis account. So too is the understanding that God is on top of things and he's in control. He's master. God as maker and God as master. Look at the, the closing of the psalm as we get some some critical reminders. I love how practical and specific this psalm gets. Specifics about the character of a sovereign God. It says, starting in verse seven, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous says the Lord protects the strangers. 
He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. And the psalmist concludes, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. He's involved, our God. The psalmist knew it. Simeon knew it. Peter and John and the people with them knew it. We can know it too. God is the master of all things. That's important to state because I think too many people are hoping that's the case. There are some believers that are guessing that's the case. There are probably some believers that are wondering if that's the case. This I know for the Bible tells me so. I want to share with you Matthew 6 very quickly. This is an account of Jesus much later in his life with his followers. Here's what he reminded them. Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky. They do not sow nor reap. They don't gather crops into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more important than they? And we know the answer to that question is yes. Creation order even supports that. Verse 27, which of you by worrying can add a single day to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Notice how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor, nor do they spin thread for cloth. Yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow's thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? He arrives back at his original thought. Do not worry then, saying, well, what are we to eat? What are we to drink? What are we to wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And perhaps you've heard this verse before, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided to you. We get a picture of our God. He's sovereign. He has total authority. And he's gracious and compassionate. We've been given a role in all of it, but he has total authority and he's good. So the question may still remain though, how? How is God sovereign? How does he do it? What does it look like in this life to recognize our God as one with total authority? It's a hard question to answer, I'll be honest. And as it turns out, not only did Acts chapter 4 show us God as maker and master is important, but it also shows us three ways God demonstrates his sovereignty. Look at how this section ends, Acts 4, starting in verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God 
with boldness. As these believers recall God's sovereignty, they acknowledge the good, the bad, and the ugly of Jesus' story and what happened to him. And in their prayer, they go so far as to ask something of God. Grant us, please, the ability to speak your word with confidence. But in this, in this passage, they mention two core components of God's sovereignty. Before we get to the third one, two core components of God's sovereignty. Their prayer acknowledges everything that happened to Jesus was part of the plan. First and foremost, God demonstrates his sovereignty through the finished work of Christ. The finished work of Christ. Four chapters into Acts, okay? And in the middle of a prayer as well. So it's, it's no surprise they, they recap quickly this, this Jesus story. But it's a, it's a critical truth. Part of me wanted to bring this point up at the end, but the passage doesn't do it that way, so here we are. Jesus came, anointed. He died. Everything that happened to him is crucial for us. He died for a believer to blame or question God's sovereignty when they experience grief or sorrow doesn't hold up biblically. I'm not saying don't struggle with it. I'm not saying don't wrestle with it. But to blame or question God's sovereignty when we experience grief or sorrow in this life doesn't hold up biblically. Look at what happened to Jesus. God was his daddy, and look what happened to him. He took on the brutal death, public humiliation on a cross. Well, that seems cruel. What kind of a God would do that? Why would he do that? What a beautiful question. One of the reasons why is because there was more than meets the eye. With suffering and sorrow, there is always sovereignty behind the scenes. Jesus didn't die on the cross because God hated his son. He died on the cross because he loved us. We put him there. And when he died, he said a couple things. But one of those things was Jesus said, It is finished. Jesus could have died and said, It's in progress. Jesus could have died and said, I have done my part. Now you do yours. It's not what he said. It's over. Whatever happened on that cross is done. And he now sits at the right hand of the Father God. That's Romans 8.34, among a bunch of other passages. What Jesus did for us and how he intercedes on our behalf now with God the Father, those are critical truths to understanding God's sovereignty, the finished work of Christ. The second thing this passage refers to in addition to the finished work of Christ, is the continual work of the Spirit. In classic Acts fashion, the Holy Spirit filled them and they became able. See, we ask all the time, God, what are you up to? Lord, show me what to do. Show me how to handle this. Those questions will be answered similarly to Acts chapter 4, and that is by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have him. So the question is, how well do we know him? How well do you know the Spirit of God? It's a great question. That question is going to be answered over the next couple of weeks here. But 
for now, as far as sovereignty is concerned, sometimes we recognize his spirit moving. We can see it, sense it, we know it, we yield to it, we embrace it. But other times, we wrestle, we wonder, we, we doubt. And in that, sometimes it's okay to conclude. I don't know what's going on, but I know who's on the throne. It's the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's three in one. You know what that means? That means he is more personal than we could ever be. The most you and I could ever be in an interaction is one-on-one. He's three in one. He's personal. He's real. There are those two foundational pieces to God's sovereignty. The finished work of Jesus Christ, the continual work of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, and this is the one you'll be talking about in the car on the way home. That's fine. Just do me a favor, bring up the other two as well. God exercises his sovereignty. Mind you, he could choose to exercise it any way he wants to, but he chooses to do so through his decretive and permissive will. God's will. God decrees things and God permits things. He ordains, decrees, he can execute whatever he wants. And those things, (laughs) they are going to happen. God decrees it. Acts chapter 4 credits God's hand and predetermined plan. But what better example do we have than the, the point of the whole Bible, this Jesus? See if this sounds like a sure thing or not. Isaiah 53, prophetic words about Jesus. God's will would be done. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Ordained, anointed, predestined to die for us. God decreed it. We live in this tension, though, with the reality that God also allows things to happen. His permissive will Acts 4 credits God's hand and predetermined plan while acknowledging the decisions of man. Free moral agents capable of decision making, yet in no such way that it thwarts God's sovereignty over all things. Sovereignty means all authority to do. It does not mean all doer. The heart of the matter is what has God chosen to do with his sovereignty? You can picture a a city on a hill. Maybe the king's palace is at the top, but at the bottom of this magnificent huge city, in the alleyways of this city, sin, suffering, sorrow, evildoers. It's not a perfect picture, not even necessarily a pretty one sometimes, but the king is still sovereign over all of it. See, in this little analogy of a city, The king's not operating like like puppets on a string. That's not sovereignty. That's trickery. Instead, he is sovereign, and we take it on faith that for good reason he is permitting people with their choices. And God has been giving people over to their choices for a long, long time. Study Romans 1 and 2 if you ever get a chance, and I plan to bring that up a little bit on the the Sermon Spotlight podcast this week, uh, because This morning, you could imagine we could get into the weeds on some of this stuff. God's wrath, the will of man. For now, the point is there's a tension we live in. 
between God's decreed will and permissive will. And that's okay. Because if you and I fully understood a king's sovereignty, I'd feel bad for that king. This is a hard topic. It's all too easy to to sit here and still be frustrated by the notion that a good, loving God would allow for suffering to happen. We talked about suffering in detail last week. We know suffering happens to make us more like Jesus and so that the world recognizes a need for him. But by God's grace, that isn't the only thing he allows. We've acknowledged already this morning where Jesus is, and here's why. Because if we're going to dwell on God allowing suffering, if we're going to wrestle with that, and it's a good thing to wrestle with, let's also consider that he has allowed this. Hebrews 4.16. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Bible guarantees a time of need and then asks us to draw near. That's so important. I encourage our our students downstairs in youth group that as they learn to to articulate their testimony, as as they verbalize the gospel message and learn to walk accordingly, do not forget where Jesus is now. Not just what he did for you on the cross, which means everything, by the way. It's the foundation for it all. But do not forget where he is and what he's up to. We have a living and active God. And he works in ways that we don't understand. But we can understand who he is. God decreed the death and resurrection of his son. And God allows us to realize the need for him. Finished work of Jesus. Continual work of the spirit. God's decretive and permissive will. All of that dependent on his character. Do you know him? He is a beautiful, gracious, loving God. What does he do with his sovereignty? Let me leave you with this, a memory verse of sorts. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. You want to know what he does with his sovereignty? He remains faithful forever. Let me pray for us. Father God, stuff like this can be hard to uh, teach through, to study. There's so much of you uh, that we want to learn, that we desperately crave. And God, I just thank you that you orchestrated all this in such a way that we would recognize you through your son. Thank you for how he walked. Thank you for what he said and what he did. And God, now that we have an opportunity to do all of those things in his name, I pray that we would. God, I pray that we would lean on your spirit as we wrestle with things. I pray that we would have to recognize what this world is doing and what you are doing. God, we know you will turn it all for your good. Your purpose will not be thwarted. And I pray that we would be reminded of that fact. I pray that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would think so totally differently from this world that we look more like you than ever before. Thank you for being sovereign. Thank you for being with us. In Jesus' holy name I pray, amen.